Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. And I'm Madeline Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of Studs Turkle. It sure does, girl. It sure does. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me the chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Welcome back to the podcast, baby girl. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. And I got to tell you, I got a bunch of emails, a bunch of DMs. I had people stopping me in the hallways of school. The people were gaga about you in the last episode of the podcast. I got to tell you that. Well, whoever it was, thank you. (laughs) Well, it was really such a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. And I'm wicked grateful that you're doing it again this week. So tell the people what we're doing. Last highlights episode, we did highlights of the first half of the season, but this is the highlights episode of the second half of the season. Exactly. You know what's going on, and now the people know what's going on. And there's yet another difference between the last highlights reel and this one in that the last highlight reel focused exclusively on teachers at the Kennedy School in Berlin. While this episode is going to dive deep into the working lives of my esteemed colleagues in education around the world, from California to South Carolina to Chicago and back to Berlin again. And baby girl, I have to admit there's going to be yet one more difference and you don't know about this, but it was in fact your idea. Do you remember when we were scrapping together the last Highlights episode? You're like, why do you have to have like two or three clips from every conversation? Why don't you have just one? Why can't you just decide? Remember you were saying that? Of course I remember. I said it. The words came out of my mouth. I mean, how could I forget? Well, and I was thinking about it, and you were right. I just think it was so hard for me to choose one clip, especially because the people on the podcast during the last Highlights Reel, they were people that I work with. I just couldn't bring myself to pick a single clip from those conversations. And I'll tell you, it wasn't any easier this time, but per your advice, per your request, per your demand, if I'm to be honest about it, we're going one clip per guest on this second Highlights Reel from season six. How do you feel about that? Nice. You actually listened to me this time. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not going to make a habit out of it. Hey, um, you actually had another really cool idea for this episode, which has never been done in Studs history. Why don't you tell the people your big idea? I'm going for it. I'm into it. We're going to do it. Tell the people your big creative idea for this highlights reel. Well, I was thinking after... Every highlight, we could do a couple jokes about schools. I have not heard these jokes yet. These are going to be new to me. I'm super excited. They're not dirty jokes, are they, Madeline? No. Wait, what's a dirty joke? A dirty joke? Mm -hmm. You live with a dirty joke. Yes, I do. (laughs) All right. So not only, my dear listeners, are you going to get four of my favorite clips for my discussions with people who have devoted their lives to teaching and learning around the world, you're going to get not one, not two, not three, but how many, Madeline? Six jokes. No, four. Four jokes. (laughs) (laughs) 
leaving that in there. <laughs> you are? From my beloved Madeline Rose Lazar. Now, we almost forgot last time, but we're not going to forget this time. Do you remember what we almost forgot last time? We had to go back and stitch it in. Yeah, we totally forgot about the Patreon thing of a Bobby. Yeah, tell the people about the Patreon thing of a Bobby. Or is that my job? That's my job now. Okay, hit it. Since I am the co-host. <laughs> All right, co-host. Tell them about patreon.com slash studs. You don't need to give him money, but if you want to, you can. Because that's not the only way you can be helpful to the podcast. How else can you be helpful to the podcast? Um, well, you can also send him a message and compliment him. Oh, <laughs> I don't need that. I know that, but I want you to have a happy new year. Oh, that's sweet. All right, I'll take a little listener love. I don't mind. Um, Patreon is a place you can go if you want to support my daddy's podcast project. He'll give you a little reward if you support the podcast. You still need to tell me what the rewards are. Yeah, well, I'll tell you. But if the listeners really want to know, they can go over to patreon.com slash studs and check it out. Fair enough? Yeah. The first clip is going to be a conversation with my daddy and this lady called Shanti Chu. Shanti Chu was my daddy's student almost 20 years ago. And now she's a teacher and she teaches philosophy. And my daddy says I met her once, but I don't really know if that's true. But my daddy said she's a pretty awesome teacher. So here's my daddy talking with Shanti Chu. Wait, before we do that, did you want to tell a joke? Were you serious about that or no? Of course. Then go go run and get, get your joke book and pick some. Go, go, run, run, run. You got the joke book? Yep. All right. Drum roll, please. Laughing at your own joke, my girl. Fruit don't fall far from the tree. What is the the king of all school supplies? What is the king of all school supplies? The ruler. (laughs) Shanti, I'm gaga about your syllabus. I have a deeply rooted reverence for Plato and the love for Cornell West. And I could talk about your intro course all day. I bet you could too. But you also teach an ethics course. Your text for this course is called Doing Ethics. And I wonder, what does it imply to you to do ethics? Like, how do you teach students to do ethics? I mentioned before how I felt a tension between theory and practice. And I think with doing ethics, it's a way to apply theory to practice. So with doing ethics and specifically with my ethics course, it's half theory and then half applied issues. So students are encouraged to apply the specific concepts such as Kantian deontology or Aristotle's virtue ethics or Miller's utilitarianism to very specific contemporary moral issues that we are grappling with in our society today. 
And to do ethics in that way is to, I think it starts with examining how ethics plays out in one's own life. So I encourage students to think about ethical dilemmas they have. For example, with Aristotle, how would the golden mean be applied in a situation that you're grappling with right now or someone that you know is grappling with right now? And to try to think about how we can apply these ethical concepts and theories to our own lives. Because if we just learn about it with the theories and not really think about how they can be applied, I don't think it's very exciting or interesting for students. And the beauty of these texts in the Doing Ethics book is that they can be applied to these contemporary issues. So what does it mean, for example, with the Kantian idea to use a person as a means to an end? Why is that wrong? I think a lot of the social norms and ethical principles that we tend to live by, we tend to do it without necessarily questioning their origins or questioning, well, why is it this way? And should I really be living my life this way? And I think with these ethical theories, they help us recognize, well, okay, this makes sense as to why I'm doing this or why this principle or this action is wrong. So for example, we tend to think of murdering an innocent person is wrong, but like, why is that wrong? What makes it wrong? So Kantian theory can be used, I think, to kind of help us think about it in an objective way of, well, it's wrong to use a rational person or a person in general. I know there's some issues with Kant and rationality, but <laughs> a, it's yeah. unethical to use a, a person as a means to an end because it violates their rationality, it violates their autonomy. And so I think thinking about it in that way can help us with some of the quote-unquote gray areas that we consider, such as war or euthanasia or abortion. And we have these ideas about these specific ethical problems already, but then applying these concepts to these issues, I think, helps us do ethics because we're thinking about them, but I think it can also help us act on our ethical ideals. So just as an example, with the fact that climate change is an urgent problem and it's a pressing issue, how would someone apply more sustainable practices in their lives? And how could that be connected to Mills utilitarianism with the notion of the common good or the greatest happiness principle and doing something that benefits the majority or everyone involved. So I think environmental ethics can be a great connection that way. And for their final project, I have them changing a behavior or starting a behavior or changing a habit or something along those lines. And then for a, a few weeks, so it's not as if it's a really long period of time, but I think a lot of students come into this course thinking about how they want to maybe change certain things or how they want to do certain things. And it's always hard actually doing it, making those changes. So this is an opportunity for students to apply what we learned and what we talked about to doing something that they care about in their lives. Some examples have been students have been veg curious and then they didn't eat meat for three weeks and then they realized, oh, it's not as hard as I thought. Or another student stopped using social media for three weeks and then recognized that they felt a lot happier and that it's important to take breaks from social media. And that can be related to Aristotle's eudaimonia and that notion of flourishing and happiness. And so those are just some examples of how I see all of us doing ethics together. I really dig those examples. 
And Shanti, I'm so fond of you that I'm kind of like desperately afraid that this is going to be an annoying question. But I want to press a little bit on this balance that you try to strike between theory and practice. And maybe the best way to do that is to like ask you how important it is that your students really grapple with, for example, Kant's intellectual argumentation, you know, taking deontology, for example, and its historical context versus grappling with the practical applications of Kant's challenge. Like, I dig why you want them to grapple with the practical applications of Kant's premises. But what I'm not so sure about and what I hope you might speak about is like, how important is it to you that they can closely and slowly read Kant and quote unquote, speak Kant? It's definitely a tension I experience and have experienced um, with teaching philosophy. And I see it as most of my students are not philosophy majors. Most of them are taking my classes because they have to, because it transfers to a four-year. That's kind of the reality of the mindset that most of my students are coming in with. And so if I really focus on speaking in speaking in Kant and solely within that context, the historical context of Kant, I will, I think, alienate some students or perhaps most of my students. And so while it may not be 100% pure, quote unquote, pure Kant, or what some people might say, like pure philosophy, that's not necessarily why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's not necessarily why my students are here taking classes in philosophy. So perhaps I'm being utilitarian about it, but I'm trying to encourage students to be more engaged with the material. And I, and just even thinking about myself as a student, well, I was really excited about learning those theories in and for themselves. I found them intrinsically valuable. It's not what inspired me to major in philosophy it was being able to apply those theories to real life. And I perhaps that's obviously that's a bias I come in with, but I think a lot of, because of how elitist philosophy can be, because it's has one primary voice for many centuries, I think that can be really alienating to students. That can be alienating to women. It can be alienating to students of color. And I think if you don't really see yourself in what you're studying and it's like, oh, the same dead white guy I'm reading, like that's not necessarily going to be something they can connect with. And that's kind of what I have in the back of my mind, just as someone who's experienced that myself as a student. So that's kind of where I'm coming from where, yeah, it's not, people might say I'm what, I mean, I am watering down, quote unquote, watering down Kant or some of these theories, but that's not my primary goal. If this was a graduate course, if this was a 400 level advanced course, where students are voluntarily and really interested in the material, they're, they're coming in with that interest, it would be a different story. But because I'm teaching mainly students who are coming in because they have to take this class, they're not majors. Many of them work at least part-time. Many of them have families that they have to take care of. And so it's just trying to think about that balance again, where, okay, given these realities that they're facing, given the demographics, given the reason behind them taking this class, like, how can I teach this 
material in a way that resonates with them the most while at the same time encouraging those critical thinking skills. That, my friends, was Shanti Chu. She's a brilliant woman, heart of gold. She teaches philosophy. She's got a vegan food blog. She's a DJ. And I've taken the liberty to link you to all of that stuff in the show notes of this program. Enjoy Shanti Chu. There's so much there. Her omnicompetence is almost a problem. She's awesome. What's omnicompetence? Omnicompetence? Oh, it's a great word. It's like, it means that you're good at a lot of different things. Omni meaning many, competent meaning capable. It just means that you're capable or skilled at a lot of different things. And Shanti Chu is one omnicompetent woman. She sounds like one too. I mean, when you talk about her, she sounds very much like an omnicompetent woman. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you yourself, my dear, are an omnicompetent young woman. You are not only a podcast co-host, you're also a regular comedian. You ready to tell another joke? Yeah. All right. Um, Do you want to pick one from the pages here? Yes, please. What's the difference between a teacher and a train? What is the difference between a teacher and a train? The teacher says, spit that gum out right now. And the train goes, choo-choo. Oh. I know, it was terrible. You know, I got to tell you, Madeline Rose Lazar, you give me a hard time for telling dad jokes. You are out dad joking your dad right now. Um, these are daughter jokes. I'm not a dad. <laughs> daughter jokes? I don't know that genre. I like that. Daughter jokes. They're dad jokes, just the daughters tell them so they're funnier. Touche. <laughs> uh, Touche, my love. So listen. Hi. Speaking of omnicompetent woman, I was able to secure a conversation with Barrett Abert, who is the vice president of programs at the American Academy in Berlin. And part of the reason I say she's omnicompetent is because in addition to her role doing program development and fundraising at the American Academy, she's also a professor at political science at Bard College of Berlin. She's wicked bright. She's got a huge heart. It was a bona fide pleasure to be in conversation with her. And part of the reason I wanted to have her on is because in this second half of season six, I was trying to talk with people who have committed their lives to teaching and learning, but not necessarily in the most traditional sense of it. And another reason I wanted to have her on is because the American Academy in Berlin is such a special institution. And we talk about how and why that is in this here clip. So are you ready to roll it, Madeline? Yeah. This is my daddy talking to Barrett. Aber. So you have very bright people, professionally engaged artists and or academics. And you or one of your team members you have the sense that they should really meet person A or B or C. 
also someone who's bright and professionally engaged. They're on the cutting edge. They've got ideas. And you want to bring them together for a conversation. You think these people should break bread or uncork a bottle of wine or something. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you make that connection? Do you tend to write an email and copy them both in? Do you try to talk the other person up or are people usually already aware of sort of to to whom they might be connected? Like maybe a thought from you, if you'd be willing about the process of connecting your fellows and your distinguished visitors to the right people and making that like a really positive and welcoming experience for all parties? It depends on the level I know the person the fellow would like to meet. When I know the person very well, it's usually I would simply pick up my phone, say, hey, we have a fellow here. He or she is interested in meeting you. Don't you want to invite us for dinner? (laughs) And usually the answer is yes. Um, And we figure out the date and that's it. Um, Of course, um, the fellowship program and also the distinguished visitors come with the potential of creating new audiences and networks for the American Academy, so also people that we don't know. In that case, um, I would usually send an email or sometimes even a letter explaining what the Academy does and if a person is interested in meeting the respective fellow. And then I would attach uh, additional information, um, material, of the American Academy to that, so that um, the person who we would like to invite or bring together with the fellow knows more about the context and knows what he or she might get into there. That's, uh, I think these would be roughly the three kinds of ways of how I would would approach this. Another, perhaps fourth way, um, would be an invitation to to the event of the fellow. A lot of relationship building happens there right at the Academy. I have to confess to you, Barrett, that you're speaking with someone here who really takes a lot of joy out of connecting people to one another. I sense that you really love it as well, eh? Absolutely. It's um, and it's it's something where I can learn every time I bring people together and. Um, even uh, drink wine while bringing people together um, <laughs> and eat and uh, and learn. It's it's perfect. <laughs> Please and thank you. Connecting people, drinking wine and learning. It's <laughs> yeah, I always say I have one of the best jobs in town, if not in the country. <laughs> yeah. So Barrett, in addition to like the joyous work of connecting people who may be of like mind or might have similar interests and passions, You're also seeking to connect the Academy to potential donors. The American Academy, as I understand it, is 100% privately funded. Correct. And so a lot has to be done to earn support for the Academy. So What what do do I do? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, you got it. What exactly do you do to raise money for this august institution? So one aspect is the relationship maintenance with existing donors, which is daily work. Phone calls, emails, updating about academy programming, inviting to academy events. Um, In addition to that, um, new donors have to be identified, especially when um, revenue targets in the beginning 
of each year increase. Uh, so the normal process is um, we come together, agree on a certain amount of money that we plan to raise. And this usually consists of a part of monies that are already identified and a part of monies that where new donors have to be identified for. Um, and then my team and I, we start the research. And this uh, involves researching companies, foundations, private individuals who could be interested uh, in what the American Academy does. Then discussing each one of them and detailing a plan of how to approach them. Most of the American Academy's fundraising is indeed done by travel and personal contacts. Um, there is once a year an initiative that we call the annual giving mailing, and this is a traditional fundraising tool, sending out uh, thousands of letters or emails to people who know the Academy, who've attended events and asked them for donations. But the, the ballpark of the money um, comes in via personal meetings and individual approaches. And these approaches uh, then, of course, also really point out how, uh, how, how a donor is integrated in the Academy's work and life and sort of becoming part of the family. So... I have the sense that like when you go out and you meet these people and you're, you know, sitting in the boardroom or you're sitting across the desk from someone, you're sitting in the coffee house and you're trying to get their support. And we should say that you're trying to get their support because you firmly believe in the mission of the Academy. Like what you do is, as I see it, very earnest. Like the Academy doesn't run on love and good vibes alone, right? Like it, mm -hmm. it needs funding you believe in the mission, and you're sitting with people and you're trying to achieve their support. And in order to do that, you have to really develop true partnerships, something that almost borders on friendship. I mean, it's not quite friendship, but it's truly a partnership. How do you do that thing where like, you create a connection with someone that transcends the mere financial transaction and it pivots towards partnership with donors. And I think this is exactly key. You, 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 you basically answered it. The transcendence of financial relationships, that is, that is absolutely key. And this is how the Academy sees its donors. It's not, they are not um, the money transferring entities. They are friends and partners. I thought in the beginning when I started fundraising work that this is extremely difficult. And of course, it is difficult to raise money and simply simply because of the amount of people one has to see, the amount of money one has to raise. That's uh, certainly, it's, it's not easy. Money raising um, doesn't become easy uh, and became more difficult during the pandemic. Um, I don't want to say that, that the money is just, you know, lying on the streets. That's, that's certainly not true. <laughs> yeah. um, but... Uh, convincing someone about the academy and about what the academy does is in so far not so difficult because I'm not acting. I'm convinced about what the academy does. I'm totally convinced in this aspect of knowledge creation and, and, and quality of research. And in the end, what the academy does, I know the academy is a transatlantic institution, but if we look at the overarching story of the American Academy, the humanities, 
social sciences, political science, people from the political practical work, artists. In the end, all of that comes together. And in the end, the questions that are being asked concern the future of how we want to live together. What defines humanity? What defines a good life? And this is of interest to everyone. And I think I, I firmly believe that these are the key questions that we have to raise and, um, and that are also relevant, of course, for, for our donors. Our donors are exactly because they are not simply the money transferring entity, but exactly because they are also part of our society. And this is something that we, I think, convey in our fundraising conversations and um, where we don't really have so much difficulties in, in conveying this. It's most of the time the fundraising conversations are pretty reasonable conversations. <laughs> yeah. Barrett, I have to say, I really adore your response. And in full disclosure, uh, I got a little emotional hearing you speak about it in that way, um, especially in our times when, you know, anti-intellectualism is on the rise and the humanities are under assault. It was just so invigorating to hear you speak with such heart about it. So uh, thank you for that. I, I have to ask, though, um, is it fun? <laughs> I'm sorry if that's fun a really like, on-the-nose <laughs> question, but like, is it fun to go out there and to try to raise funds for this institution that you believe so firmly in? Oh, totally. It's totally fun. I mean, you could, you know, I mean, you meet people that you would otherwise really not meet. I mean, from uh, the whole spectrum. And it's, this is totally fun. I mean, I, I need my, I need solitude, but still it's, uh, it's, it's huge fun to go out there and, and meet other people. Oh yes, absolutely. And you, you enter worlds that, uh, that you wouldn't even believe they existed <laughs> in, the, in the most positive way. I'm saying this really in, in a very positive way. <laughs> yeah. That was Barrett Abert, and this is a joke. Let's hear it. What is the snake's favorite subject in school? What is the snake's favorite subject in school? History. Oh, that's brutal, but brilliant because... You're a history and politics teacher. I am, and you're so brilliant, you don't even know it. The next clip is from, drumroll please... Me in conversation with, you guessed it, a history and politics teacher, but not just any old history and politics teacher, one of the best in the country. Mr. Daniel Jose was the California Teacher of the Year, and he was one of the National Teacher of the Year finalists. He's at the top of his game, and I must confess, his game is my game. A history and politics teacher. It's like a history and politics teacher interviewing a history and politics teacher. Crazy. That's exactly what it was. It was crazy, and it was a crazy good time. I have to confess, I took a real liking to Daniel Jose and... I Daniel Jose? Both of your names are Daniel, and you're both history and politics teachers. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah. 
super cool, outrageous, and amazing, phenomenal, fantastic, incredible. Woohoo! Unbelievable, super cool, outrageous, and amazing. Phenomenal, fantastic, so incredible. Woohoo! Hey, people got a song on this highlights reel. Wonderful. Now I will tell you, my dear listener, that in some cases it was really hard to choose the best clip to share on this highlights reel. But in the case of Daniel Jost, not hard at all, because Daniel Jost regaled me with the story of the time that he went to Barack Obama's White House, hung out in the vice presidential mansion, schmoozed with the president and the vice president, and earned his award as national teacher of the year finalist. So we ready to hit it, baby girl? Yeah. Now let's press play. Last I checked, your uh, YouTube channel has like just a sneeze shy of 20 million viewers. Not only have you become a real resource to your own students, you've become an invaluable resource to a lot of teachers and students around the world. And, and I commend that. I think it's really demonstrative of your seemingly tireless commitment to climb in this hill with and for your students. And I think it's in part because of that and because of your commitment to equity and helping students find a voice that a couple of years ago, you earned the title of the California Teacher of the Year. And it's a big deal, right? The state of California is more populous than something like 80% of the countries on the planet. You got to spend an evening with President Obama and then Vice President Joe Biden. I've seen the photos, man. You look real happy. And I know you've spoken about it, and I wouldn't want to make you swim in your past glory for too long. But Daniel, I gotta know, what did it feel like to win the award of California Teacher of the Year, to be in the top four teachers of the country? And what did it feel like to win that award and hang out in the White House. Yeah, it was surreal. And I have uh, still trouble processing. Don't have a problem appreciating, but just processing. Dang, I got invited to the vice president's mansion. And I'm going to admit, as a U.S. history teacher, I should have known this. I didn't even know there was a vice president's mansion. I knew (laughs) that they had to live somewhere. But I had no knowledge of of where it was or or anything. And so to have the honor of having cocktails with Joe and Dr. Jill Biden and to, to be in their house just roaming around and using the restroom and snatching the hand towels because they have the vice president's seal on them uh, <laughs> and you want to like prove that you were actually there. And then it happened to be uh, President Obama's last year in office. So they went all out for the ceremony at the White House. We, we had the Marine Corps band playing and 
and food just spread all around the East Room and shaking hands with the president. I was like, he must moisturize like nobody's business because he has the smoothest <laughs> hands. They're strong, but silky smooth. And I was just like, dang, Mr. President, you have some nice, smooth hands. And I'm like, what am I saying to the president of the United States? Um, and so, you know, it, it, it was an honor from the get-go when I was named one of LAUSD's Teachers of the Year. And then it kind of, the county and then the state. You know, it, it's weird, right? Like when I, when I tell people it, you know, in like basketball or in any sport, right? The MVP, you can look at the stats. You could say, look, you got this many points per night on average. You did this number of things to get your team, this number of wins. Like you can quantify it usually. But in teaching, there's certain things that are objective. If you look at some test scores or things like that. But so much of what we do is subjective. I could be someone's favorite teacher and the student right next to them, they could hate my guts and dread coming to my class. And believe me, there's probably a few of them out there and it makes me sad and that makes me want to keep trying to get better. But I, I just took it with a great degree of humbleness. My wife is a kindergarten teacher. In many ways, she's a more phenomenal educator than I could ever even dream to be. And so I don't even feel like the best teacher in my own house. And yet here I was experiencing these wonderful opportunities to be amongst some of the best in, in our profession. Uh, and yeah, it, 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 was, it was surreal, especially since, and I haven't really talked about this too much, but you know, I was actually, as a, as a history teacher, I flew out to Obama's inauguration in 2009 and missed the entire inauguration because uh, a lot of people don't know it was so heavily attended because it was like a historic moment. There was a lot of enthusiasm. We had the purple inauguration tickets. It was too crowded. And uh, the, the Capitol Police put us in this tunnel and we didn't get into the, the inauguration in time to actually witness the ceremony. And so for it to happen in the last year of Obama's presidency, it felt like the universe was was making that right because I was like, "Damn, I missed that." I was paid a bunch of money to fly there, slept on somebody's uh, floor that I knew, and missed the whole dang thing. And had to fly back, tell my students I missed the whole thing. I, I was in a tunnel, so <laughs> it, it, it was it was quite the honor. Yeah, and it seems like you took that honor with a substantial dose of humility. And uh, you know, I know I'm a bit late here, man, but. Congratulations. I'm real happy for you. And I know you earned it and I'm sure you enjoyed it. And not to take any wind out of the sails of that, but like, look, you're a stellar teacher. No doubt about it. But I'm curious, just for a moment of earnest self-reflection here, like, how would you change any of your processes? Like, what are your deficits that you're going to be chipping away at for the next couple of years? Hmm. Sometimes I feel like I'm so driven by the curriculum that I lose a lot of opportunities to really make even more meaningful connections to what's going on in the world today, what's going on in my students' lives. I oftentimes feel like I'm, I'm rushed. And, and there's so many students in my classes and there's so much history to cover. So for instance, you know, the, the Capitol riots that took place in January, I've been teaching online through Zoom since March of 2020. 
So we were in our Zoom sessions and in, in all my classes, we were way behind in the curriculum because we had half the instructional time that we normally do because of the new procedure for distant learning. And, and I was like legit struggling with how to incorporate in a meaningful way what just happened with the realities of our pacing for AP or our pacing for world history that I, I was having this kind of like crisis. Like, what do I do? And like, do I open it up for questions and I cut them off after 10 minutes? And, and I completely just decided, you know, I'm going to abandon it and I'm going to go into a real deep dive as to what happened, the historic significance of it, the way media talks about it, just all the different angles that that moment afforded us as teachers, as history teachers, as government teachers. And we spent a couple days on it. And without a doubt, my, my AP students fell behind. And I don't think any of them were too disappointed by that. But I felt this sense of responsibility because so many of my students are first generation, first generation in this country, first generation college students, in many cases, like I feel like I have to get them as prepared as possible. And so I sometimes let curriculum decisions override what I know is good educational decisions. And that is spending times on, you know, the racial realities of America in 2021. And so I think the one thing that I really need to do, especially now that I'm on the, the back end of my career, I've been teaching, what, 17, 18 years, I still got another 15 probably, is finding more comfort and willingness to just kind of say, you know what, the curriculum, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. We're, we're going to continue to, 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 to cover what I'm entrusted to teach but also allowing for those, those opportunities to organically or inorganically kind of spring up and, and be comfortable with that. Just kind of providing more space for students to direct our learning process. That's not to say, you know, every day is like, hey, how are you guys feeling? What do you want to talk about? But by no means that. But we live in such an ever-changing world, and, and it's so confusing, and there's so much misinformation that I feel like I need to be more deliberate in how I, I, I treat those, those moments and how I cover them. I, I, I feel like I almost don't want to teach history anymore sometimes. I would just like to teach like a class called The Present and just help students unpack some of the things, help myself unpack some of these things. And I think that's one of my, my areas of weakness that I, I do want to address. And also the grading piece. Like how do I authentically provide feedback to students given the fact that, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and I have my own family and couple friends even and <laughs> some things I like to do and I don't want to be strictly defined by the work I do and you know a big part of my identity is teacher but I feel at times it kind of consumes all of the different identities I have and striking that balance you know one of the things that that is sad and fascinating to me is you know in 2016 I was one of the teachers of the year as you mentioned, I was one of the final four. I'm one of the few people for National Teacher of the Year. Uh, I'm one of the few people that is actually still teaching. You know, people have different reasons and different career goals, but most of the, the teachers, and this is true of all the different years that I've looked into, they're not in the classroom anymore. They're doing other things. Some folks have left education entirely. Others are administrators or curriculum writers. And if 
we believe that these are among the best of the best. The place they should be is in the classroom. And like, if you were to take the best sports figures out of their sport, you'd be like, wait, that makes no sense. This should be on the court where they're the most effective. And yet there's not a lot of incentives for great teachers to stay in the classroom other than their own internal drive. They can make more money going into other types of work. And so for me, you know, ever since the community college days of trying to keep the health insurance or at UCLA feeling very out of place because I was one of the few people trying to be a teacher and people would look at me like, you're goofy. Like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> Is how do I maintain my, my passion for teaching, not get bitter, jaded, more than I already am, <laughs> so that I can still think about a question like you just asked and say, yeah, these are my areas of weakness and, and here's how I'm going to address it. Because I'm, I'm kind of scared sometimes thinking about what happens when I don't ask those questions of myself or what happens when I go, yeah, I'm weak in that. Oh, well, yeah, I have a lot to continue to kind of work on and work towards. And I think all teachers feel that strain. Even when you think you're at the top of your game, you're not. And then sometimes when you're at the top of your game, the only place left to go is down. <laughs> and so how do you keep yourself at a high level? It feels enormously stressful, a lot of pressure. So just trying to take it day by day and do the best job I can with the students I'm with. Was it joking or did he seriously tell the President of the United States that he had soft hands? I think he was serious, and I think that was probably my favorite part of the story also. That and the fact that he stole some towels from the vice presidential mansion. Because, you know, sometimes you gotta steal from the vice president, right? You do? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. So Daniel Jose is a world-class history and politics teacher. And we're gonna wrap up this season with another world-class teacher a guy who got his start as a history and politics teacher some 45 years ago. Dr. Bruce Field began his career as a high school history and politics teacher. He went on to become a history professor and then devoted the back half of his 40-year career to teaching teachers how to teach. He became a teacher educator, and I thought it would be appropriate to wrap up the season with Dr. Field for two reasons. First, because I wanted to honor this man's four-decade commitment to teaching and learning. And second, because Bruce's long career took a handful of unique twists and turns, and I wanted to give him a chance to reflect on all that. And Madeline, I have to confess something to you, and you're going to be mad at me, but I'm used to it. I couldn't pick one excerpt from my discussion with Bruce Field. I went with two shorter ones. Can we still be friends? Yeah, but there is one thing missing that you totally forgot about. It sounds like me. What did I forget about? You forgot about the joke. Oh, you are totally right. I 100% forgot about the joke. Why did the girl bring a ladder to school? Why did the girl bring a ladder to school? Because she wanted to go to high school. Ah, uh, but I'm bumped.
So we're going to let Captain Bruce drive this train into the station. When you say roll it, I'll roll it. Roll it. It's a tough job. You know, despite that rumor that floats out there around the world, at least here in the States, far too often, you know, hey, anybody can teach. That's just flat out not true. Something brought you to this point. Something brought you to the point where you want to actually make a positive impact on young people's lives. So, you know, if you need to take a deep breath and step back, do that. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Is a lot of the work that you did as a teacher educator wrapped up in precisely that? Like, you'll be fine. It's okay. This happens to everyone. Check your ego. Remember who you are. And coaching and empowering and walking beside them towards some comfort and some optimism? <laughs> I know you probably want me to come up with some long answer to that, but my answer is, well, Daniel, you got it right. Yeah, that's what this is all about. You know, there's a reason why teaching is considered a helping profession or a service profession, if you will. It's because it's about humanity and it's about people operating together in a classroom environment and helping each other grow. I mean, maybe one thing to talk to young teacher candidates about is, you know, you're not only helping the young people grow, but trust me, the longer you stay in this profession, <laughs> the more you're going to understand that those kids in front of you are helping you grow as well. It's a two-way street. So yeah, that's really what a lot of this is all about. Well, it is a two-way street. And here's sort of a two-part problem that I know you'll be able to tackle. Because it seems while on one hand, you want to empower them and embolden them and provide them with confidence, you also want your aspiring teacher candidates to be humble and to check that ego at the door. Right. How do you do both of those things at once? That's, it's interesting the way you phrase that, because I don't think I've necessarily put together in this same thought process, the reality of, yes, we're trying to empower them, but hey, you know, don't get too full of yourself. We all have stories of people who come into a classroom with uh, reams and reams of yellowed papered notes from 20 some years ago and stand in front of a classroom and babble. That's not teaching. You can feel empowered to be in front of a group of students. You know, but the empowerment is not being in front of the students. The empowerment is being with the students. And so in that sense, you definitely need to leave your ego at the door so that my definition, if you will, of empowerment uh, is, is a possibility. You know, it was, it was a great movie title, by the way, the movie title Stand and Deliver. That was a great, great movie. But it's a horrible, horrible mode of teaching. You know, I, I love classrooms where students are actively engaged, and that is a demonstration of giving up your ego so that you can empower students in the classroom, not just the teacher candidates, but the students in the classroom, to really feel comfortable to jump in feet first and, and get into whatever it is they happen to be getting into that particular day. So it's an interesting, I'll, I'll have to think more about that, the, the idea of balancing empowerment and ego, right? 
Good thought there, Daniel. Good thought. Well, I think we're all struggling with it every day, and perhaps particularly these days. So I think that's where the thought comes from. Okay, this is going to sound like a cliche because it is a cliche. Um, but my my biggest evolutionary realization through the years, here comes the cliche: it takes a village to raise good teachers. I, which is weird because I wasn't, and, and obviously the reason why it had to be evolutionary for me is because that's not what happened to me. I was prepared as a teacher at, at East Carolina University and then went out to Wyoming. And hey, I was the social studies department in Wyoming. So there was nobody to turn to, you know, to help yeah. me there. And there was, when I went to, to uh, Berwyn Cicero, actually, I took over a teaching role for a guy who left unexpectedly. And he had also left his students behind in many ways and shapes. And so I was so far pressed to just kind of catch his students up that, you know, I didn't reach out to anybody for help. I didn't even realize that there were people out there you know, who could probably help me do better. That was just probably youthful ignorance. Even uh, when I taught in Newport News, Virginia, I was so wrapped up in raising a family and and doing things like uh, coaching the golf team and working with the National Honor Society and all that kind of stuff that I really didn't think about, you know, if I'm stuck, who can help me? So this whole thing about raising, I'll put it that way, raising good teachers, I realized that when I was at Northern Illinois and I was in the College of Arts and Sciences and I walked across the street to talk to the people in the College of Education, which, by the way, was seen as not the right thing to do by other people in arts and sciences. That was, I always thought, kind of weird. But there were some people across the street who could help me in what I was trying to do. And when I worked with P-12 principals and teachers in South Carolina and Georgia to craft meaningful learning experiences for teacher candidates, and then when I got involved with the, with the NAPDS, you know, all of a sudden I was like, you know, this is not something that you do alone. I mean, it seems so obvious that I should have known that all along. But the fact that I didn't probably says something about the way teachers were prepared in, in a previous life. One of my very good friends at the University of South Carolina, she likes to remind me that when I came to South Carolina and she and I were talking about teacher preparation programs and whatnot, she specifically shared with me her view that the best thing in preparing teachers was to, quote unquote, build relationships. <laughs> and she always, she constantly, we talk about this a lot. We still talk about this to that day. When she said that, I looked at her and I smirked. I laughed. Hmm. I was like, oh, you, you can't be serious. That's just too kumbaya-like, you know? Daniel, I don't smirk anymore yeah. at that. Yeah. That's what I've learned. You can't do this alone. It takes a village to raise a really, really good teacher. And, and as kind of a sidebar to that, considering that my background was in secondary, you know, teaching history and whatnot, I never thought much about elementary teachers. I got to tell you, 
25 or 40, take whichever number you want, 25 or 40 years of, of being in the education professional, I now have a huge appreciation for what elementary teachers do. I, I, I'm just floored by what it is that they need to do to survive in a classroom. Here, here, you know, here, here. And I was kind of poo-buying them in the same way I was smirking at building relationships. But I don't smirk and I don't poo-buy that anymore. Now, that doesn't mean I want to teach elementary kids. I've got no patience for that. <laughs> you know, I'll, take my, uh, I'll take my high school kids over the elementary kids. But yeah, the biggest thing I've learned is that it, it really does take an awful lot of resources and an awful lot of people to effectively prepare really, really good teachers. And kudos to those who choose to go into the elementary field. You're a better person than I. <laughs> right on, man. good joke to share with you. Just one? Yeah, I mean, it's the best one I could find. Ooh, we're now in line for the best one. Here we go. Why do math books always look so sad? Why do math books always look so sad? Because they have so many problems. I love you, Madeline Rose. I love you too. All right, my friends. So please follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you have the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com slash studs. So we'll be back in two weeks with the patrons only working roundtable for your listening pleasure. I'll be exploring working lives with three studs patrons, Olivia Swarthout, Tony Demma, and Susan Brown, three esteemed patrons living in three different countries, representing three different generations. It's in the can, and trust me, my friends, you're not going to want to miss this one. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being supportive. Please stay healthy, stay well in these funky times. And until next time, I wish you love, peace, and happiness. Baby girl, say bye to the people. Bye to the people!